Welcome back to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today, as always, with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Sup, Lance? What's going on? How are you? I'm doing great today. We uh, had a really wonderful conversation with one of our favorite uh, guests, Mike Morford. The uh, Steve Martin of uh, Crawl Space. As you'll hear about in uh, just a moment, yeah. And uh, today we talk mostly about his podcast called Criminology. They, they just released season three. And it focuses on Ted Bundy. Everyone knows about uh, the serial killer Ted Bundy. One of the has to be one of the worst human beings in the history of the world, right? Yeah, we covered a lot with uh, just this conversation and his season that covers Ted Bundy. Uh, he really does a great job of getting all of the facts in there, everything that's sort of important to know about Ted Bundy in uh, four episodes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's pretty breezy, and it's uh, but also very detailed. So, congrats to Mike Morford and Mike Ferguson on their spectacular criminology season three. Because Ted Bundy is not an easy topic to, no pun intended, bite your teeth into. Well, you could probably do a hundred episodes on him, you know, or you know, or, or if you did one or two, you just miss a ton, you know. So they, they do really detailed accounts and. Uh, great episode so definitely highly recommend criminology the podcast okay so check us out on twitter at crawlspacepod we're on facebook and instagram as well and also check us out on the podcast missing maura murray we are about to release our documentary called finding maura murray on amazon vod on october 1st 2018 october 1st 2018 on amazon episodes one two three and four this is our trip to Canada with James Renner, our introduction into the more hands-on work that goes into the Maura Murray case. And if you want to hear a candid interview with Lance and I, check out Mike Morford's other podcast, or one of his other podcasts, I should say, called Crime Sphere, and he interviewed us in episode seven, and there will be a link to that in the show notes. Thank you very much. Enjoy this conversation. Welcome to Crawl Space, Mike Morford. How are you today, Mike? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing great. Doing pretty well. Thanks for coming on. Uh, you're always a a great guest, and we always have really good conversations with you, so we appreciate it. Well, anytime. I'm always happy to talk to you guys. Yeah, you are one of our favorite guests, and I think this is your fifth appearance on Crawl Space. I was trying to count them yesterday in my head, and if you count the... The brief one, the day the Golden State Killer was caught, your brief appearance then on a live show that made the podcast, and then a quick interview from CrimeCon. I think we're at five right now. Whoa, do I win anything? No, but you're in, you're the leader in the clubhouse. I was hoping I could win one of those crawl space mugs. Oh, now these are... these. Those are custom designed, but <laughs> you can go on our Zazzle store and uh, use a promo code, and you can get a uh, a, a one uh, crawlspace mug for yourself. A two tone one. Two tone. You know what? We'll just we'll just ship one let's, right let's to just, you. Let's just we'll send just, one right yeah, to you, Mike. Yeah, yeah. That's what happens okay. when you're when you're on the uh, the crawlspace airwaves five times. Yeah, you get a mug. It's like SNL. Like you get the robe. Like the five timers. Mike, you are the Steve Martin of of crawlspace. That's right. <laughs> hey, anytime I can come on and uh, talk some shop with you guys, I'm happy to do it. And it's mostly because the subject matter you cover is just so hilarious and uh, just 
Just kidding, obviously. And you play a mean banjo. <laughs> but no, l- l- let's talk about your work in the field of true crime. And uh, you are sort of known as True Crime Guy. You have that blog, but you also have this great podcast called Criminology. And uh, your season three just wrapped up, right? Yeah, season three was all about the uh, crimes and mind of Ted Bundy. What a topic to take on. It was. It was something, you know, in in the true crime genre, you know, if if you want to do true crime, you have to have some kind of background talking about Ted Bundy. And, you know, I knew a little bit about Ted Bundy, but I didn't I was no expert by any stretch. And we enlisted the help of uh, an online friend of ours named E.J. Hammond, and she is a Bundy expert and she helped walk us through to to make season three happen. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Now, I, I think you mentioned that you met her at CrimeCon. Is that correct? Yeah, we met in person. We were actually friends on, on Twitter and Facebook and stuff before that, but we met in person at CrimeCon, and um, we started talking, and, you know, I had known she was a Ted Bundy expert, and, you know, we talked a little bit about doing it, but I was burnt out from season two with the Golden State Killer. I literally was just not in the mood to even think about another season at that point. I wanted to take a month off and just de-stress. Yeah. And, you know, in talking with her, she says, look, you know, I'll help you, you know, create it and, and take a little bit of the pressure off you. And, you know, she was very uh, helpful in that. And we said, sure, you know, we'd love to have the help. And, you know, it was an interesting project working together with her and she knows a lot about the case and it, it really helped us out and it, you know, filled a gap when we needed to put some material out. You know, we didn't want to put something out that's just a, uh, you know, four episodes of schlock. So we we wanted it to be good, and she helped us put something out that we thought was pretty good. Yeah, and this is definitely not schlock. It's uh, it's wonderfully detailed and uh, just very informative. Well, thank you. Did you ever have any doubts when you were thinking about doing Ted Bundy? Because that is, I mean. You look at anything online, and it's so dense. There's so much information. Also, your other two seasons were unsolved, and this one is is a, a different kind of case, right? Yeah, we w- we wanted to mix it up a little bit. You know, the first two were serial killers. Ted Bundy's a serial killer, and we didn't. You know, it's not like we intended to become a podcast about serial killers. I think, you know, as we're going along, we'll we'll dive into some different stuff. But we said, you know, we want to do Ted Bundy. That's solved. Let's switch it up a little bit. So it was a little bit different doing a solved case because there's less questions. You know, we have some of the backstory for that. And uh, before we get a little deeper into Bundy, just wanted to mention you have a uh, a couple new podcasts, one called Crime Sphere and one called The Murder in My Family. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yes. Yeah, so Crime Sphere is a weekly or biweekly, depending on our schedule, <laughs> um, podcast that I host, co-host with uh, Nina Instead, who is already gone. And we talk about what's new in the world of true crime and the news that's breaking and developing. And we also talk about what's new in media as far as TV shows, books, documentaries, that kind of stuff. And that's what we do for that. And then The Murder of My Family is a solo project that I've been thinking about starting for a long time, and I finally got around to doing it. And that's where I discuss different murder cases and talk to family members of the victims to help me tell the story and get an idea of what it was like trying to get justice for their family members. 
Well, it's a light fare. I mean, that's probably nothing that uh, sticks in your psyche as you go through your day. Yeah, you, you leave it at the door. It's tough. You know, it's it's hard not to take a little piece of each story with you that you cover and not, you know, it's it's there. You can't just shake it off and say, okay, I'll move on. And that was one episode. Now I go to another one. You take a little piece of that story with you and it, it, it's kind of negative in the fact that you, it's it's always dealing with something so painful but having the platform to help these people tell their stories and talk about these cases is something that i think is positive and something good comes out of it so that's what i try and focus on i imagine that's that's quite therapeutic for these family members i'd like to think so i, I know a couple of them had said that and you know i've I've so far it's been all positive. I haven't had any negative reviews from family members. I've I've had a lot of people thank me and say they really appreciate it and that's what I'm hoping to do is provide a a platform that's positive and is a good thing. Yeah, well, I think that's a great idea for a podcast, and uh, we commend you for doing that. I uh, can't tell you how many emails we've received over the past three years in doing what we do with Missing Maura Murray and Crawl Space uh, from family members who ask for coverage. We, we couldn't get to them all. So your idea, this premise for this show, I think is uh, the perfect place for people who want to talk about their friends or loved ones who are murdered. Yeah, and it, I think so too. And unfortunately, the sad thing is there's no shortage of cases. There's just, like you mentioned, there's a whole endless list of them and, you know, new ones are always happening. So it's from a, a podcast standpoint, you want to have stuff to talk about. But the flip side of the coin is it, it's all these people being murdered to talk about. And I wish that would come to an end. That there'd be nothing left to talk about and there'd be no more murders. But obviously, that's not the real world. So as long as it's it's something that's worth talking about, I'd like to keep talking about it. Yeah, if you're able to have a platform and have a voice and provide some sort of comfort, then, you know, you're on the right path. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a rewarding part of of doing what we do, I guess. And so now you had books that you wrote for season one and season two of Criminology, that being the Zodiac case and the Golden State Killer, and those are available on Wild Blue Press. Are you planning a, a book for this season about Ted Bundy? As of right now, we're, we're just trying to get caught up and focused on the first two books. You know, season one about the Zodiac Killer we turned into a book and it's strictly a transcript of the podcast. So it's a, a written format of, of what we did on the podcast. And then season two for that book, we wanted to switch it up a little bit and make it a little bit more book like. Um, so that's what we did with that. So I think right now we're just playing catch up, trying to see where we are with those two books and, and go from there. But we want to focus on those two and, and seeing what the, what people's responses to those books. Hey Lance, what's not smart? I think tops on that would be letting my friends pick a karaoke song for me to sing. 
that's that's good. Yeah, that that's definitely not a smart choice. But do you know what is smart, Lance? Hold on, let me get my other list of things that I think are smart. Right on the top of it, it's going to say going to ziprecruiter.com slash crawlspace to hire the right person. Am I am I right? It's right on the top of my I, list. I knew it. And it's not even because I do things in reverse alphabetical order. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Boom. It's powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates. F-A-S-T. First? Fast. Oh. So that's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. So we have something good for people who listen to Crawl Space who are hiring. Oh my. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. What? Just go to ziprecruiter.com slash crawlspace. That's ziprecruiter.com slash crawlspace. C-R-A-W-L-S-P-A-C-E. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, so let's get into uh, Ted Bundy. One of the most interesting things that I find always about Ted Bundy is that he escapes from prison. Yeah, he escaped from prison multiple times, and it's he's a resilient and uh, smart and, I guess, shifty kind of guy that was able to get away from custody more than once. Okay, you said smart, and that was one of my questions that I wanted to ask you. Do you think that he was brilliant? Do you think he could have been labeled or was he labeled as a genius? I don't know that he was a genius. I think there's been a little bit of discussion about that. I think he definitely was smart. I mean, he went to college. He was college edu- educated. He was involved in politics. You know, so I think he moved in, in circles of of people that were in that kind of uh, niche that you know he'd have that intelligence, that he'd have higher learning in, in college and stuff like that. So I think he had at least a, an average IQ or, or better, and he was smart enough to go into college and, and practice to become an attorney. And unfortunately, that t- sort of took a backseat to what he started doing, and he never really put that to use. But you know, had he put that motivation, that drive, that passion that he had for killing into whatever he wanted to become as a, as a person, he could have you know maybe done great things. Yeah, what do you make of the judge's comments during his trial when he was sentenced? Yeah, that was, uh, you know, we, we talk about that a little bit in one of the episodes. That was uh, pretty memorable. You know, if I remember watching that when I was younger and seeing that and saying, well, here's a guy that's this massive serial killer that's done all these grotesque things and, and ended so many lives. And he's getting like the praise of the judge in the case. You know, not praise necessarily, but, you know, he pointed out the the fact that he could have done good things and he chose to go another direction. And I think that's a, an interesting you know, dichotomy that somebody can be two different sides of, of the same coin. So Bundy confessed to 30 homicides uh, in seven states. 
between 1974 and 1978. But what do you think the actual victim count is? You know, we discussed that a little bit in the episodes, too. I would tend to think it's in that range, maybe slightly higher, maybe some that, you know, he didn't bring attention to or maybe even forgot. I don't know how good he was at keeping track of of that stuff. But, you know, there's been claims that there was a hundred potential victims. I think that's just really high to because if you think about the time, the energy, the, you know, the luck to get away with that many murders that many times, you know, I just don't think that's possible. But you know, if it was 30, 40, I could see that being probably the likely number. So how would this guy approach his victims? He didn't look like the monster, the troll under the bridge, number one. He was a, you know, good looking guy. Um, he didn't look out of place. He was, he looked like somebody that you would trust, but he would also take it a step further and he'd usually have an injury. He'd have a cast on. And he'd ask some of these female victims to help load his books in his car and uh, things like that. And then he would attack these women while they were helping him out. And other times he would pose as a police officer telling women that they needed to come with him because, you know, there was something wrong and that he needed to take a report. So I think having that look and that charm that he had put these women at ease. Whereas if some of these scary killers that we've seen, they're scary looking, they look like serial killers. I think if they approached these women, they would have been a little bit more on guard, but I think he helped get their guard down a little bit using some of these natural things that he had. Fun piece of trivia, uh, Thomas Harris, who wrote Silence of the Lambs based the Buffalo Bill character or several, uh, characteristics about buffalo bill from ted bundy the cast and getting help loading something into the into the vehicle so his his uh techniques did resonate outside of just the psychology and the and the criminal community thomas harris must have considered bundy an inspiration for hannibal lecter as well though because that was the role he played in trying to help the feds catch the green river killer yeah and he he did offer to help them out and you know, he had some things right. I think that he predicted that the killer would go back and visit his his victims after their death. And he he was right about that. There are certain things that he definitely hit you know, on the head. I don't know how much of an effort they made to enlist him in helping them, uh, but they did listen to some of the stuff he had to say in the Green River case. Do you think that Ted Bundy would have been as successful as a serial killer if he wasn't handsome? I don't think so. I, I don't think so because I really think that first glimpse of when these women saw him, it, you know, if you've got Ted Bundy coming towards you in a dark alley or you've got Otis Tool coming towards you in a dark alley, if you've ever seen a picture of that guy, you're going to right away be on guard if he's coming towards you versus, oh, this guy doesn't look, you know, like he's a risk. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep my, let my guard down. I think that first initial second or two where people made that first impression of them helped him just let their guard down a little bit. And I think it's, I think he easier easily could have had a lot less victims if he wasn't charming and handsome and didn't present that first appearance. Okay. Now we, we talked real quickly that about him having uh, escaped from prison twice, but can you tell us about the time where he lost 30 pounds in order to escape? Yeah. So he had been losing weight in prison to try and squeeze through, uh, I think it was a crawl space. Yes. Actually, that he was trying to get through. 
Thanks for the plug. <laughs> Crawl space. Uh, but he got out that way and, and made his way out. And I think some of the prisoners actually tried to tell the guards that he was trying to escape and they didn't listen. And by the time they realized he was gone, he had gotten a head start on him. And he was he didn't look like any of the pictures I've seen. He never looked like a heavy guy to begin with. So him losing 30 pounds, uh, he must have really worked to and been determined to get out because I can imagine how thin he must have been after he lost that 30 pounds. I don't know if people really understand the true horror of Ted Bundy, especially the younger people that are just getting into true crime. Can you speak of just a couple of things that brings that true horror of this man into into light? Well, I think I should preface it by saying that, you know, this is a different era. This is when people hitchhiked, you know, I think some of the younger people out there listening are like hitchhiking. What's that? You know, it's just something that it just doesn't happen anymore. But back then you would put your thumb out and somebody would drive by and pull over and pick you up and you would trust them that they're going to give you a ride to wherever it is you're trying to go. And back in the sixties and seventies, I can only imagine it was a, these serial killers patrolling the highways must've just had a field day with, with these potential victims that were willing to jump in their car. But You know, beyond that, he would do all kinds of terrible things to these women. He would, um, you know, mutilate them, remove their heads. He would have uh, sex with their corpses. Uh, He would do it repeatedly. He would go home and come back the next day and then do it again. And, you know, he was big time into necrophilia. And he would continue to do this as long as the bodies would be you know, not too far gone to do that with. Um, and then once they were finally decomposed enough that he couldn't do it, then he stopped. Uh, but I, I think that's the most repulsive and uh, gory detail about what he did and, and how many times he did that, because he did that a lot of times. Now, he defended himself in court during one of these trials, correct? Yes. And, uh, he made the decision not to plead insanity. Was that the same trial or was that a different trial? So I, I forget the exact details of, of why he, what he, what his point was that he was trying to make, but he, he didn't really own up. He wouldn't own up to being, um, responsible, you know, and he, his mental illness, I think showed through when he, defiantly said, I'm going to represent myself. It's just that part of his uh, personality that came through and he chose to represent himself. And he even wanted to question, you know, some of these potential female victims and and witnesses so he could have a chance to to talk to them and and force them to talk to him. You know, we had on uh, a guy named Ron Eng on the show and he worked at the sorority house where the uh, Bundy killed a bunch, attacked a bunch of the girls there in Florida. And he became a, a brief suspect uh, early on. And in court, he was forced to go in there and stand, you know, side to side and back to back with Ted Bundy uh, to, to do a physical comparison. Um, and that was something that, you know, Bundy seemed to enjoy getting him to 
pull those strings and get him in there uh, to display in front of the jury. So I think he got it off a little bit on the whole representing himself and and um, thumbing his nose at, at the legal process. Sort of the attention it gave him. I think he craved that. And I think and, you know, he denied for a long time that he did this stuff. You know, it was uh, he always had an excuse and. It wasn't until he knew he was going to die and there was no saving himself that he finally said, this is, you know, I admit it, I did this stuff. Uh, but he, that was something that he just, his personality wouldn't let him admit that. And, and, you know, that's one of the interesting things about him is you almost wonder if he really believed it some, on some level that he didn't do it or he just continued that lie until it was impossible to continue the lie anymore. Now, you're talking about the interview that he did with, is he a doctor? Dr. James uh, Dobson? He's a, uh, he's a psychologist? I think he was a, um, a religious doctor of some sort. He had a, a, a degree, something. But yeah, he did that uh, shortly before his execution. And he opened up and, you know, we had a couple snippets in the season of, of some of that interview. And it's really bizarre because he's at points Ted Bundy's talking about himself in the third person. Sometimes he's whispering to the doctor because he doesn't want other people to overhear what he's saying. Uh, and it's pretty bizarre, but he finally admits to um, some of the stuff that he did. But there were some victims, especially the young ones. I think, I don't know if the remorse is the right word, or maybe he felt that even attacking some of the young girls that he had killed was just even further below uh, what he would expect as uh, decent. You know, it, it's hard to explain, but some of the young victims, he definitely didn't want to admit to killing. Um, and I think it's because he realized that that was the lowest of low. And, you know, maybe to admit that would admit how much of a monster he actually was. Right. Do you think that this is him uh, being remorseful of being that much of a monster? Or do you think it's him not wanting that? Because there's a certain level of monster that he wanted to be. And he wanted to die with that image uh, in people's in people's heads. So do you think that he, it wasn't true remorse for like a, on a human level, but more like, hey, I'm already the king of serial killers. I don't want to be associated with being, you know, a, a child murderer, too, because that sort of diminishes the crown. You know, I, I sort of wrestled with that. I, I don't I can't put my finger on it. If, you know, he was raised by a religious family. I sometimes wonder if he felt he was letting them down and to admit that he had done this to children would be too far to over the line, even for somebody in his family to accept because his, his mother defended him right up until the end. And then I guess she was just in denial. Um, but I think maybe he just didn't want to hurt her, but you, you have to wonder because you, these guys usually don't have empathy. They don't care about anybody but themselves. They don't care about anybody else's feelings. Um, so it makes me wonder if there really was any empathy, if he was just embarrassed that he had killed girls that small. Yeah, I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. Yeah, because he says at one point that he does feel guilt, um, but it, it didn't really ring true, I don't think. And uh, there was one point in that interview where he declines talking about the 12-year-old girl that he uh, murdered. He, it, was, it was too tough for him is what he said which is really frustrating. It's frustrating that he wouldn't own up to it, 
But again, the, the reasons for him not wanting to talk about it, it's just I wrestle with my own beliefs of, of why that is. And, you know, if, if we go by serial killer code, these guys just don't have any feelings. They don't care. They don't care what you think, what I think, what their family thinks. They don't care about anybody but themselves. But I, I just something nags at me that something made him again remorseful is probably not the right word, but embarrassed. I don't I don't know what the the right word is, but something about those crimes I think he he didn't just didn't want to stoop to that level of being that much of a monster. You said something a minute ago about his mother defending him right up until the end, and she was in some sort of denial. Uh, he also was raised in a in a Christian environment. Do you think that that denial is a result of being a devout Christian? Yeah, I think it may be. I think he he had this image that he had made. I'm a Republican. I'm this clean cut college guy. I'm going to be an attorney. Um, I think part of it was just wanting to protect that image, and I thought he, you know, I think he thought he could get by with that image and somehow make people believe that that's who he was. Um, and I think some of the di- denial stems from, you know, for me to admit this goes against everything that I built in this image. Um, so I think he held on to that and just to, until he just couldn't deny it anymore until it was uh, clear that he was guilty and there was no getting out of it. During those interviews before he was executed, he's uh, talking about porn as being one of the reasons he killed or or sort of one of the one of the effects of watching porn is uh, i suppose what he became so he he kind of blames it without exactly saying i blame it um on porn and even sort of brought horror movies into it what do you how do you feel about that i think he was using that as an excuse i would bet he doesn't know why he did what he did he probably it was an urge that he couldn't control and maybe they just the urges kept building up until he did it and, and he couldn't stop it. I, I think a lot of these guys can't fight these urges that they get and they, you know, they probably don't even know why they're getting them and why they can't stop. You know, if you look at somebody like the golden state killer, same thing, you know, one thing led to, to breaking in and then it was breaking in when people were home. And then finally it was taking somebody from their home and then, and then it led to rapes and then, and then the murders, it just, it spiraled and kept going deeper and deeper and I'd be willing to bet that, like Ted Bundy, the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, probably couldn't tell you why he did what he did, but obviously those urges were there. I think that's a fascinating thing to consider is these people that do this kind of stuff, can they stop and, and do they ever ask themselves, why can't I stop? And I think that same is probably true of Ted Bundy. I, I just don't think he knew what he, he was was driving him, but he used that porn as an excuse. And and again, I'm sure somebody with sexual urges and desires could possibly be fueled by, by porn. It's probably uh, safe to say. But then again, you know, uh, how many guys out there watch porn at some point and they're not serial killers? Well, that's what I was going to say. By his logic, there should be more serial killers today than there were then because there's more porn today and there's more horror movies today. Yeah, I, I think it's just a it's a you know baseless claim for him. Maybe it didn't help his situation, but just seeing some porn didn't cause him to become a serial killer. There's obviously a lot more going on than than that.
fascinating quote by him. He says, we serial killers are your sons, we are your husbands, we are everywhere, and there will be more of your children dead tomorrow, which is a, a crazy, remorseless thing to say. I think that speaks a lot to the, like I said before, the, the crown that he wanted to wear. He, he wanted to kill, he liked killing, and he didn't feel guilt. He actually said that he felt sorry for people who felt guilt. I think he liked being what he was. What do you think about that? I think so, too. I, I think, I mean, he said at times that he wanted a normal life. And I think, again, the urges probably took over and it derailed that from happening. But he definitely talked about some of those things to where I think he was being truthful, even though it's a hard truth. And it may have been remorseless. But the fact that he was admitting that there are serial killers out there, there are people like me that do this thing and there's going to be more victims because I'm not the only one. He was right about that. I mean, who knows how many different serial killers have been operating in the sixties, seventies, eighties, up until they finally started understanding serial killers and searching for them and, and looking for traits uh, to identify them. But, you know, I think he hit the nail on his head. They are, you know, they're your sons or your fathers, or your brothers, um, and sometimes women, sometimes they're sisters and daughters and stuff too, but primarily it's men. But, you know, he sort of accepted that there he was part of a certain kind of people. Um, and I think that's something that whether it was no remorse or, or what on his part, he was right about that. I think one of the most terrifying things about him is how... People have claimed to have experienced him physically changing when they're in his presence. Not like a true metamorphosis, but his facial expressions would change, his eyes would change. And some people even said that he admitted an odor, which is really, really interesting and, and terrifying. And that made me think about something else that he said, which was, when he got the urge to perform necrophilia and to murder, he it was like a tidal wave of a chemical that would hit his brain and it would send him into a frenzy. And if you put those two things together, like this chemical hitting your brain and then you, you physically change so much so that someone can look at you and say, that doesn't look like the person that was here a second ago. And then a, a, an odor coming out, coming off the person that is it's, I don't want to say he's like the perfect manifestation of evil because I don't really believe in evil in like the religious sense. But could that be as close to evil as as you can get? I'd say so. Yeah. And if you get into the science of it, you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, but it makes me wonder if he did have, you know, some kind of physical, you know, abnormalities in in his brain um, that, you know, perhaps was detected by people. Um, you know, we hear about people that are getting ready to have seizures. Dogs can sniff that out. Um, so maybe there is something to that where chemicals in his body would, some people could sense that. And that's something that we, we touch on a little bit in the, in the episodes. And we actually talked to an author who is, he works with brains and and was very interested in Ted Bundy's brain. And, you know, he touched on it from that angle of exploring the physical causes I think that's an interesting thing that maybe should be checked out further, uh, not just with Bundy, but with other serial killers to see if there's some kind of physical uh, changes like that that can 
you know, alert people. And who knows? I mean, years in the future, maybe there'll be dogs that can sniff out this chemical or whatever that say, hey, this person could be dangerous. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if if studies could be done with some of these criminals to see if there is such a thing. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, there is uh, studies done on people's brains. They do the studies for uh, concussions. Now, now they're able to identify uh, whether or not you have a concussion uh, without you donating your brain to science after you've died. So a living person can have, you know, they're on their way of discovering that or at least looking into it. But there, there have been. Uh, there, there are abnormalities in a serial killer's brain as opposed to, you know, my brain or your brain or Einstein's brain. Or Dr. Morford. Or Dr. Morford's brain. <laughs> Dr. Morford. The, uh, <laughs> now, the Golden State Killer, Joe D'Angelo, there were accounts of him sort of emitting this odor, too. But now that was more like uh, like a Crisco that he put on himself or some kind of lubrication that he put on himself. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah, there were there were times when he, you know, a lot of times people would say he smelled like sweat. Then other times they would say he smelled like aftershave. And then other times it was um, this smell that I can't describe. And I think one time it was cinnamon. And I don't know if any of that was chemicals necessarily, but I think uh, he definitely had dog repellent uh, that he sprayed on himself to try and uh, throw these dogs off. So who knows, that could have been uh, causing some of the... Uh, odd descriptions that people were giving. That's right. I forgot about the the dog uh, repellent. Now, are there any other accounts? Do, do you either of you guys know about a serial killer emitting some kind of strange odor for anything else other than Bundy and GSK? Right. No, I not not that I've ever read. And even uh, Golden State Killer is more like something he did or or sweat like a natural smell. I don't think that I've ever read anything about somebody stating that they've been in the room and seen a change and smelled an odor. What about you, Dr. Morford? Yeah, as far as my um, medical background goes, I haven't come across that either. I, not that I know of. Um, I, I think there's a lot of common uh, traits specifically about the brain. We, I think we all agree on that, whether it's people that have hit their heads when they were younger. Uh, a lot of serial killers have head injuries. Um, you know, obviously when they examine some of these brains, they find that there's certain portions of the brain that are different from a normal person's. Um, but it would be interesting to take the chemistry a bit further and explore other changes that can be detected in the body to see if they could uh, be predictors or give any kind of clues as to who might do this stuff and if they're any different that way uh, as well. Well, sometimes when Tim and I are in the Crawl Space Studios, uh, Tim will emit an odor, but it's usually me who wants to kill him at that point. Which I, I don't know if that's got like a contagious effect. I thought that I always thought that was you with the odor. That's well, weird. hopefully you guys got a good filter system there, and it uh, sucks it right up and takes it out of the uh, the crawl space for you. We don't. No, it's basically a hyperbolic chamber in here. <laughs> I, I just a, a brief Google search does uh, suggest that there may be something to what we're talking about as far as a smell and serial killers. At least there are a few articles and there's a, a decent uh, reddit thread about it so i don't know something to something to look into i mean you never know where crime is going to go when crime and and technology uh which changes all the time every day as we're seeing with dna more cold cases than ever are being solved now you never know where the future of crime uh, plus science will go absolutely i mean just look at you know where dna is now versus where it was five ten years ago it's it's just night and day to difference so you know, who knows what the future holds, what other 
tools will be at the disposal of, of people that are trying to stop these guys and understand them. Can you tell us how Ted Bundy was captured? I think that's a, uh, it gives me a dirty feeling when I hear the story about how he was captured. Also, side note, he was a, he was a pretty impressive alcoholic, too. Not a lot of people re- realize that he was an alcoholic. Yeah, we didn't we didn't touch on a whole lot of the alcohol aspect, um, but on your first point, um, he had been pulled over, obviously after the Florida incident. We're going we're going back to that after he committed the attacks on the women in the sorority down in Florida. He got away, and then he attacked a, a young girl uh, on her bike not far away, and. I think he stole a vehicle and police, you know, got onto him that way. And when they finally, you know, when he pulled over Bundy, the officer, they got into a confrontation. They got into an altercation and Ted Bundy didn't go quietly. I mean, he, I don't know how big the officer was, but he put up a fight and and resisted him and, and they struggled for the gun. And, you know, finally the officer got the upper hand and, and was able to subdue him. But, even at that point, he was denying who he was, but then he's saying little things like, you should have just let me, uh, I wish you would have killed me, things like that. So what does a guy that hasn't done anything wrong say, I wish you would have just killed me, and, and why is he resisting arrest like that? Compared to some of the things we see on TV nowadays, it wasn't that that big a uh, a deal the way he was taken down, but he wasn't going quietly despite his uh, easygoing uh um, laid back appearance. He put up a fight. Yeah, I think the part that makes me feel dirty is the the scent in here. Yeah, <laughs> the scent in the hyperbolic crawl space chamber. <laughs> no, just I don't know. Like speaking of scent, I can almost smell him. Can't you? Like if, if that I'm, is the sour milk smell in here. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you know, I can't. Like I couldn't imagine being the police officer that that arrested him. And you know, he gets out of the car and he just must have been like it. Just I, he just feels dirty to me. You know, he just got off of. Another another attack of a young a young woman. Yeah. And again, I'm sure the officer walking up to the car at first, you know, once he knows the vehicle stolen, obviously he's probably on high alert. But when he sees him, he's probably not. All right, this guy looks like he's a you know thin college guy. I can easily handle this guy. He doesn't look that threatening. And you know, obviously, that was part of Ted Bundy's mo, and and that's how he was able to get the upper hand on him. Now, he got married after he was uh, incarcerated. Can you tell us about this story? Yeah, so he used to have a lot of, uh, I guess you would call them groupies, women that would write to him in, in prison and follow him and go to court. And um, and I think the woman, the woman that he actually married, he had had a relationship with uh, previously, if I'm not mistaken. And they conceived a child, and nobody knows exactly how they were able to do that. I have a theory. Yeah, you know, there's been a couple theories. We discussed them on the on the uh, podcast, but one of them that was a guard assisted them, you know, for money or what have you. But there's no known way of how the the child was conceived. But you know, apparently she was born and changed her name and went into hiding and doesn't want any part of being Ted Bundy's daughter, which is a whole other uh, podcast episode in itself of what it's like to be his daughter, probably. Yeah, here's my theory. So uh, on on the podcast, you you guys said, well, maybe uh, this this prison guard was kind of bribed, and he let uh, Carol and Ted go behind a vending machine or have some kind of conjugal visit. But that that means that 
however many times that happened, that guard was willing to let Ted do this, that Carol was impregnated once or like after after one or two tries. It doesn't seem likely. What seems more likely is that she was impregnated by someone who wasn't in jail and what wasn't like didn't need to bribe a guard to let a serial killer have sex like that. That seems really unlikely to me. I, I, you know, I don't know from what I've heard and I've never seen this uh, girl, but uh, the author Anne Rule, I think, knows who she is. Uh, and I've heard uh, from other people, again, I've never seen her, but I've heard she's a spitting image of Ted Bundy. Um, so it'd be interesting to know if if she really is, you know, if how it, it came to be. And who knows, maybe she'll come out of uh, the hi- hiding one day and, and share her story. You know, she didn't do anything wrong. We just did a episode on criminology. We talked to Jen Carson, who's the daughter of a serial killer. And, you know, she talked at great lengths about how she, too, is a victim, um, which she is. And you see it in the Golden State Killer case. You know, D'Angelo's daughters, you know, they didn't do anything wrong and they've got to live with this now. He's ruined their lives and now they're victims. So, you know, Ted Bundy's daughter, she's out there and decides to come forward. It'll be an interesting story. But, you know, she's got to understand that she didn't do anything wrong. That's definitely true. But, uh, you know, before she comes out and, and writes a book or whatever happens if she ever comes forward. I would love to see an actual DNA test or something like that because uh, based on what I've heard, uh, it doesn't really seem that likely to me that it's his kid. Yeah, I think, I hope somebody would, you know, confirm, you know, before they give a book deal and say, okay, you know, we're just going to take your word for it. Uh, we hope somebody would confirm that and make sure that it is indeed his daughter. Now, um, Bundy was executed uh while sitting in old Sparky uh, down in Florida. So can you tell us a little bit about the execution of Ted Bundy? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. We had a pretty good recounting of that. And, you know, he's eight feet away from his cell was eight feet away from the, uh, the chair. So he had that in his face and the whole time that had to be a knowing that that chair that you're going to die in is sitting eight feet away from you. Um, but, you know, his last meal, he didn't ask for anything special. It was very uneventful. He got up and they marched him in and he went limp legged and and they had to drag him a little ways. And then he composed himself and then finally manned up and got in the chair. But um, I I think the interesting part wasn't the execution itself. It was the mob scene outside of the prison. It was like a a tailgate party out there. People were just cheering as the the hearse is driving off with his body is. you can see that, you know, I remember the video and I can still picture it, just this large crowd mobbed outside cheering and, and whistling like they're outside a football game. It was it was definitely something I don't remember seeing since then. Yeah, it's uh, something that brings people together, I suppose. <laughs> football games and dead serial killers. And the execution of monsters. Yeah. And then you have a united front. Well, yeah, I was going to say about about his execution. Like, I don't, I don't really want to get into a, a death penalty debate uh, on these airwaves right now, but um, this guy really needed to be put to death. There was no prison that that could hold him, and there, and he was going to kill people if he wasn't in jail. So, however you feel Tim, about, didn't you didn't you hear the uh, the interview? He found God. He oh, you're right. To- he found God. You know total what? Total remorse. He's just going to stay off the porn. They should have let him out. He's not going to watch the Halloween series anymore. Death penalty wise, again, I, I I agree with you. Probably shouldn't debate that, but I, I think it's safe to say if there's somebody that deserved the death penalty, that that's him. So I, I think we could probably leave it at that. And 
Um, everybody can fall on their own sides of, of the death penalty, either pro or con. He escaped prison twice before and killed people after escaping prison. So I would say this is the best evidence that, you know, if, you, if you're if you a pro-death uh, penalty. I'd say if you're going to use his brain and scientifically uh, dissect it and make some conclusions that could help society later on, if uh, a person like that is occupying the prisons and taking up taxpayer money, I know that's such a tired argument, but if there, any, if, if there is anyone who deserves to be executed, it's someone like him. Yeah. But the mob scene re- really was fascinating outside, and uh, you make a good point. Like, that's not something we've seen since, and uh, there's not a ton of like high-profile executions like Ted Bundy's was, but uh, still, that's um, that's quite a scene. I, I, I was trying to put my, myself in the shoes of people, and I don't think I would be happy about it. I don't think I would be chanting, na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye, you know, I might. I don't think I'd be happy at all. I think I'd be disgusted by the entire process. It's just more death, you know. Like, I, and again, I, I, I support him being put to death, but I, I don't think I'd be celebrating it. Yeah, it's almost like that mob mentality of when people just start getting out of hand and start fueling each other's rage and stuff, and it, it's, it's scary because then they be, start becoming a little bit more like the monster that they're, they're screaming and yelling about. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a society uh, thing um, that it's scary to see that there's some parallels between everybody, even serial killers and, and normal people. Yeah. yeah. You see that a lot more going from the physical mob scene to a social media mob scene. People pile on on social media all the time. And you said, like, you don't know if you'd feel sad or happy that because it's just perpetuating death. But uh, you you definitely wouldn't be going down there. You know, people who are feeling this, you know, uh, passionately about something. Now they'll turn to Twitter or Facebook and they'll they'll protest or they'll they'll assemble there as opposed to going to the physical location, which is why I think that leaves that left such a impact on I think all of us because we're all in the same age range. And we remember that as being one of the earlier memories of, of, you know, watching TV and seeing something we'd never seen before. These people obviously went down there and they felt passionate about putting somebody who they thought was, you know, pure evil, uh, just getting that person out of the world. Uh, I, I think a lot of those people probably could care less if his brain is examined for scientific purposes. That's a good point. I, I do sort of get the relief um, that these people would have, because I even going through uh, your podcast and hearing the part where he's executed, you I, th- I feel like you feel a sense of relief. It's like okay, good. I don't have to hear about this guy killing anybody else. I'm glad he's not here anymore. Um, yeah. But but it still didn't make me feel like cheering or anything. Maybe because I was alone when listening to it. I don't know. Maybe because they were there and it, it affected them. It's in their their area where these crimes happen. But still, it's it's an interesting. Uh, uh, thing that we just don't see that often. I mean, it's it's sort of reminiscent of the you know the OJ verdicts. You know, uh, the the passion that there were from people when that was announced. You know, um, versus what would the opposite have looked like if if he was found not guilty? Oh, you know what that looks like? That, well, well, yeah, that happened right before the OJ the the LA riots. You saw yes. you saw what happens. And that feeds into the the mob mentality of, you know, so at what point are we finding ourselves being similar to some of these guys that we we think are pure evil? There's there's some kind of uh, 
wavelength that I think at times lines up to where we could be a little bit like these guys. And uh, that's a little, a little bit scary to me. Yeah. And it, it, there's, I'm probably using the word incorrectly. It felt a bit, it, it felt a bit disingenuous to me to watch those people celebrate his death when he was responsible for so many innocent people dying and they don't show you pictures of people with the t- like Karen Campbell, one of his victims. No one had a T-shirt with her picture on it and just standing there in silent protest. It's these like rebel rousers with, you know, you know, they spell Friday F.R.Y. day. And it's like you're going to celebrate that you're there's 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 more to this incident than, you know, your your secondhand gratification of the whole thing. And even someone like Bundy, who was so familiar with death, having killed uh, at least 30 people approximately, but he was afraid. As you said, he he went limp at one point before getting into the chair. The guards had to put him in. And also you you noted that uh, he didn't want to leave his cell at first, too. So this was a guy that was actually afraid to die um, and really quite cowardly about it, I would say. And he even said at one point in the interview, I think, that he said, I don't want to die. You know, he didn't, I don't think he used the words afraid. I think he said, I don't want to die. But I think he had almost given up and accepted his fate, um, which was interesting. Now, that would not be an easy death. And I, I certainly think it would be really difficult to uh, stand up and walk towards the guards when they say, all right, come on, let's go. It's your, your time's up. You know, I, I don't know that I could do it. Um, but this is, again, this is a guy who is so closely connected to death like he had to know he had this coming at one at some point. And that goes back to those urges. You know, he knew what the outcome would be. He was a smart guy. So he knew what he faced if he got caught for this kind of stuff. And, you know, even knowing that it was wrong and knowing what the results would be, it, it, he couldn't stop himself. But he said himself he was the most cold hearted son of a bitch uh, out there. You know, he's the most cold hearted son of a bitch you'll ever meet. And, you know, it, this guy is the guy who's, you know, needs to be carried to his death. Like you said, he's a, a bullshitter. Yeah, he was a merchant yeah. of death. You should at least man up and take your own death. You look what you've 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 just ripped people out of the world. I would almost think he'd be curious about the experience, to be honest. Yeah. And I mean, every I think everybody could be a cold hearted son of a bitch until it t- comes time to walk to the, towards the electric chair that you're getting ready to get strapped in. And I think that uh, is a real wake up call. That must be uh, like such an experience, you know, to to look at that thing and walk towards it and know I'm not going to get up after I sit down there. And, uh, you know, they strap you in, they put a mask on you. And it's going to hurt. Oh, yeah. And and he looks everybody in the crowd in the eye, even smiled, apparently, or at least smirked at the prosecutor. And and you, as you say, it, it hurt. It, it, it smelt like burnt flesh a bit. Do we know any? I mean, there's not many many accounts uh, of people who have survived the old Sparky. So how, how do we know uh, like how bad it hurts? I don't think there is a way to know. I can only, I can only assume that that, that the many volts of electricity going through you is not going to feel good. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm not getting too graphic, but you know, I think your eyes pop out of your head and all kinds of different things. So, um, you know, some guys catch on fire and uh, their head smokes and stuff. So, uh, it's probably like I would imagine it's like being cooked um, alive. So something that I definitely don't have want to experience. I once as a child stuck a key in a uh, electrical socket. Yeah. Because I'm just an idiot. And that hurt a lot. 
I mean, that it's experiencing electricity on such a level flowing through your body. Even a key in an electrical socket is is painful. You know, they shave your head. They put that thing on your head. It goes into your brain and throughout your body, and they don't stop until you're dead. And he had burn marks on his head from from the the device you just mentioned uh, after his death. Actually, there there are photos um, of his body after his death. Yeah, and he still had that sort of smirk on his face too. Yeah, he did, and and the burns on his head. Yeah, kind of graphic images, um, but uh, but kind of interesting to see the effects of old Sparky. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, again being pro or con uh, death penalty. Uh, I don't think there's any arguing with the uh, the horrific result of uh, the aftermath. How how frustrating was it for you putting together this season and listening to the interview that he had with Dobson when he, in one breath, would say, listen, I'm not making an excuse for my behavior and my actions. And then in the other breath, it was all about him going down the path and using pornography and all of that. How, was that frustrating to hear? Do you think that he was talking out of both sides of his face there? Yeah, I, so, I sort of tend to think that he was. Um, he seemed to be a, a contradiction at times. You know, he'd say things like, I didn't do this. And then another time he's saying, I'm the most cold-hearted son of a bitch that, you know, ever lived. So, I mean, I think some of it was an act. And then at times, maybe little bits of the, the truth would slip in uh, or the more uh not larger than life Ted would come through um so it's it's interesting to sort of compare the the things that he said and did and try and figure out who the real Ted Bundy was and i really like the point you guys make on the podcast that uh really only his victims saw the actual Ted Bundy because that was who he wanted to be all the time and any other person or any us who have seen videos of him pictures and such we're looking at him with his mask on essentially absolutely i mean who knows what kind of deranged look and uh, you know things he did during his his murders you know that's the stuff we'll never know now, uh, there's a new movie that's coming out uh, about Ted Bundy, right? Yeah, there's one. Uh, I, I forget the name of it, um, but it's it's got um, Zac Efron in it, which is which is funny because... That's, that's Lance's favorite actor. Got his poster on the back of my bedroom door. Uh, uh, somebody had um, he, you know sent us something, uh, an email or message, a DM, that said, is it true that Zac Efron is going to be on your podcast this season? <laughs> I don't know where that came from. And I was like, no. And I responded to it and I made a joke on Twitter that, um, no, Zac Efron is not coming on our podcast. And like immediately we had these hundreds of retweets of people saying, please, Zac Efron, please come <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> we had this mass um, of uh, listeners that were, you know, trying to get his attention to get him to come on the podcast to talk about it. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the movie. It looks like it'll be pretty good. And he, you know, from what I've heard, he's, uh, doing a, a pretty good job as Ted Bundy. Yeah. He, lo- he looks really authentic as Ted in some of the, uh, the pictures out from, from the movie. And the movie is called extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile. That's the name of the movie, so it's kind of an interesting title. Yeah, I think when the movie comes out, you you could definitely reach out to him again. I wouldn't. I don't see why he wouldn't do your podcast. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if Zach Efron's going to respond to uh, little old us uh, reaching out to him with his millions of followers, but 
if he's listening, he's uh, welcome to come on the show anytime. Once I, in my next uh, fan letter that I write to him, which is going to be in, ooh, I'm already late to, to write it. But uh, so when I mail that, when I pop that guy in the mailbox uh, later on today, I will make sure that I remember to put in a request. Say, hey, give uh, Dr. Morphe a, give him a ring, Zach. Z. Put a I, good put a good word in for us. I call I call him Zeph. That's my. I, I'm excited to see James Hetfield from Metallica in it too. I'm a big Metallica fan, so he's going to be playing the cop that arrested Bundy. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, so that should be pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, multi talented guy. Yeah. With all of these things, Ted Bundy was on the FBI's ten most wanted list. He called himself the 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 most cold hearted son of a bitch you'll ever meet threatened that if people continue to watch porn there'll be more ted bundys out there so he even referred to himself as a as a you know a thing loser a loser um what can we learn anything from him i don't know that we can necessarily i mean i i think keeping him in captivity i don't know if that's the right word captivity but um examining him studying letting people question him um might have been the best way. I mean, analyzing analyzing his brain would only get you so far. Um, but then, you know, he's a liar. Who knows if anything that he would tell people would be true? You know, you know, he said, "I had a great upbringing. I had a great family." Blah 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 blah. But do we really know that? I mean, is there? You know, there were some rumors that his his mom was actually. His sister, that's how it was passed off. She was actually his his um, mom, but for a while she posed as his sister. And, you know, there were rumors that she may have been impregnated by his grandfather. Um, so uh, who knows what kind of dynamics were going on in, in the background there. Um, and then the things that motivated him, you know, there were accounts where he was the victim of a molestation uh, when he was younger, but I, I just don't know where we draw the line to say, you know, this is real. This is not real. How much BS is he giving us? If he tells us about all these victims, are there some that he's leaving out? Um, so I don't know to what extent keeping him alive and talking to him and learning more about him would have helped because we just don't know what would be true and what wouldn't. I agree. He was so full of shit and everything he said was sort of self-serving in whatever he wanted the person or people to hear and, and believe about him at the moment. Um, but I will say the only thing that of value that I think maybe could have came is, well, at least the pattern that he kind of helped with the Green River Killer is somewhat interesting because he did nail that the Green River Killer went back to the crime scenes and revisited these bodies and perhaps moved them or something like that. But he also had a really kind of great idea on on a way to get a photograph of the actual Green River Killer. In uh, those conversations he had with the feds, he said if you set up some kind of horror movie film festival night uh, that this killer may very well uh, appear and be be in the crowd and you can take pictures of all these people and you may have a picture of him and I think that was really fascinating and I think that is kind of a glimpse into the mind of a serial killer because obviously they are attracted to murder and things like that and it was Bundy's idea that serial killers would be attracted to horror movies especially in a setting like that so I don't know maybe there were more, more ideas like that that he could have come up with concocted but uh, other than that, he was full of shit and a waste of life. 
I agree with you 100%. He probably would have got killed in prison. If 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 he wasn't executed, he would have he would have been among the Jeffrey Dahmers who prisoners don't really tolerate child killers and he would have he wouldn't have made it much longer. 